standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 262 of the Standard Issue pod scene. I'm Mickey Noonan and I saw a snake in the wilds of Walthamstow. An actual snake. What sort of a snake? It was a grass snake having a swim. Having a swim? Yeah, swimming. I've seen some in the um, Botanic Garden in Cambridge doing exactly the same thing. I was just checking that it wasn't like one of your... When, when I worked for a local newspaper, we used to have a lot of stories about people who'd come home and go, oh, my cobra's escaped. <laughs> no, it was it was a native snake doing native things, which I've never witnessed before. So it was it was genuinely a proper joy to see it. They're fast. Yeah, we've been watching Deadlock, haven't we? Tiger snake. There are only three types of snake in in Tasmania and they are all poisonous. I kind of appreciated that. Yeah. Because there's no messing around. If you see a snake, run the hell away. Yeah, don't try to make friends with it. So Gary's got a tiger snake, which is the snake mentioned in Deadlock, tattooed up his leg. And it's because one, he was biking in Australia and a snake reared up in his path right at him and it was a tiger. They're in the middle of nowhere. So obviously, very lucky that they didn't get bitten. Oh, yeah, we're absolutely dead in that scenario. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. the option, isn't it? Dead. Yeah. Yeah. The only yeah. option. <laughs> yeah, because I think at that point, you're like, I just might just do something with my last three minutes rather than attempt to get help. You know? <coughs> now then, listeners, I've been quite ill. And every time Hannah makes me laugh, which, because she's a very funny woman, will be a lot. I'm just going to cough, so apologies for the noise. Or just cut it out and make it look like all of my jokes just died. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see whether you piss me off in this record and I'll decide then. <laughs> anyway, I'm Hannah Dunleavy and I am now a gangmaster. By that, I mean I have not one but two work experience peoples this week. Get you. Lovely Hannah. I know. Lovely Hannah. I'm leaving her to it. <laughs> Drinking a lovely cup of tea made to me by one. The other one is working remotely, so she's not made me as many cups of tea. But maybe she has and they're just all sat in her front room. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just delivering them over to me. <laughs> There's no Jen this week as she is on her holidays, but you can hear her in her excellent chops with writer, broadcaster, activist, icon, Sue Anstis from Sunday and her forthcoming chat about the many, many perils of modern dating with relationships expert, la la la, let me explain. If you've not already... Don't forget to smash that subscribe button. Very um, with the kids way of saying that. (laughs) Anyone who watches Safia Nygaard on the YouTube will know that that's how she says it. Smash that subscribe button. Well, speaking of the kids, going back to my work is, I suppose I should thank the British media for providing me with some journalism 101 moments (laughs) after failing media law spectacularly. This week, I had started off saying I want to thank the Independent, but more and more people are throwing themselves onto the bonfire of the British media at the minute. I might have to just stick with the Independent because the reason people are getting themselves in trouble is by saying stuff and I'm absolutely not going to repeat their mistakes. But, oh, Ryland, Mickey, did you see what they did to Ryland Clark, the Indy? They did. They did some accidental awfulness. They did. They put out a Facebook post. Now, we were just talking about this off air. I can understand how it's happened because they've used something like the buffer. Mm. But why it's happened still eludes me completely because somebody should be checking. They put out a Facebook post that says a top presenter has been taken off air and then quotes after paying teen £35,000 for explicit pictures. And they've pulled in the story, which is about Ryland Clark saying it's not him. And so the picture that goes with this headline 
is Roiland Clark. That is some some libelous stuff right there. He should absolutely sue them because the reason this happens is because then whoever's done this is either poorly trained or overworked or possibly both, Mm. I would say. And you know in Fight Club where he explains about how you know, they don't pull a car back until it costs more money than to pay out all the insurance claims. Yeah. This is exactly it. People should sue the media for stuff like that until they realise that actually they're paying more money in fines than they would be in uh, employing some actual staff to do the job properly. So they need to reach that tip-over point. Fight Club is an interesting reference point. I like that because it also reminds me that I will never not be amused by the BBC reporting on stuff that's happening at the BBC that bits of the BBC don't know about. Just always tickles me. No matter how horrific the subject, I'm afraid my dark sense of humour is just like, but you are the BBC. Even though I know how it works because I'm a journalist. But yeah, it's just, we asked the BBC press office for a comment, but they wouldn't give us one. But you are the BBC. (laughs) They just shouted over. Dave, what do you make of this, mate? <laughs> totally. No comment. Yeah, I mean, they're not the only people. Obviously, I'm going to have to be careful what I say here, but GB News did something staggering, which was the person who currently everyone believes this is, they've created a silhouette to use as a backdrop to this story, but they have actually used a silhouette of the actual <laughs> person who everyone's claiming it is, and he has quite distinctive ears, so you can tell it's him from the silhouette rather than just a generic man head. Yeah. And we're now getting to the point where nobody actually even knows whether the son has done enough due diligence on this story. So what a colossal clusterfuck. What a week in journalism. And it's, you know, it's only Tuesday as we record this. There's still yeah. time for it to escalate. It's an interesting one in, in mainstream media. And obviously the fact that they're making mistakes is shameful, really. Obviously, they happen, but it is shameful when they're quite basic mistakes. And like Mm. you say, journalism 101. But social media, the amount of people who are defaming innocent men is just astonishing. It's horrific. And the media bit of social media is really important. We are all bound by the same laws as the media when posting on social media. There's a new word for it now. They're calling it twibble because Twitter libel. And people are just... They're just putting names up willy-nilly. They're mm. trending. It's, yeah, it's it's really shocking. I mean, I don't even want to name the names of the people that mm. they're suggesting because uh, it will, apart from, obviously, Ryland, because he's been, he's been absolutely screwed by them. I think he's not going to sue them. I think he seems to have taken an apology off them. But I don't know if there's anything else going on behind the scenes, but wowzers. Which is more than, and I will name them because they're they're taking it to court, Nikki Campbell and Jeremy Vine have both made screenshots of various Twitter things and they're going to sue people. So you Mm. have to be so careful on social media. Yeah, absolutely. Now that is a story that has been all over all of the the media for the last few days. But there's also uh, another story that caught my eye. The Tories' Stop the Boats madness continues apace. And yes, I am going to repeat myself by stressing that it is mostly desperate people in desperate situations resorting to desperate measures, getting on those boats, some of which aren't worthy of the descriptor. But fuck me, every time you think the Conservatives can't sink any lower. Actually, Hannah, do you ever have that thought? Are you just like, nah, of course they can. 
No, I think that their bottom, as it were, is probably the same as the Titan submarines. <laughs> yeah, totally. Well, anyway, so you're probably not going to be surprised that Immigration Minister Robert Jenrick has ordered murals of cartoon characters, which include Mickey Mouse, Baloo from The Jungle Book, painted on the walls of a reception centre for unaccompanied child asylum seekers to be painted over because he considers them too welcoming. That's out. I was going to say outrageous, but... But that doesn't quite cover it, does it? No. So staff at the reception centre in Kent were horrified by the order, and rightly so, and opposed to painting over the murals, but the Home Office later confirmed that they have been removed. Jenrick also ordered colourful welcome signs to be removed, as he wanted to make clear the centre was a law enforcement environment and, quote, not a welcome centre. There have been no more small boats crossing the English Channel since that. Oh, wait! That is, of course, fucking hooey, because potentially making terrified children a little less terrified by greeting them with something familiar isn't what is making people seeking asylum cross the channel in small boats. What that is, is just mean. It's just cruel. There is a pinch of good news that's come out of this absurd and peevish behaviour, though. Guy Venables, a cartoonist for Private Eye, The Spectator and Metro, said, A huge list of highly regarded cartoonists had offered to repaint the mural. They're having to hold off at the moment because access is difficult because it is a child zone, but they're helping out with other projects such as picture cards for children who can't speak English. When he was asked what would happen if the cartoonist repainted the mural and then the government ordered it removed again, Venables said, quote, We will be cartoonists for a lot longer than Robert Jenrick will be in mainstream politics, so we'll paint it back on, which I thought was a lovely yeah. post. Oh my God. Oh my God. I know, I know. Coming up, award-winning journalist and editor, author, podcast host and midlife expert Lorraine Candy talks to me about the magnificence to be unlocked in a woman's midlife and thankfully also how we unlock it. Great. Yeah. I chat to Cora Bissett, a woman of a whole load of talents, about her award-winning show, What Girls Are Made Of which is returning to the Edinburgh Fringe for a third time because people can't get enough of it. It's about her time in an indie band in the early 90s. So we've had a lovely time putting together this week's playlist, have we not? Oh, we have. It's one of my favourite playlists for a while. I like them all, but this one is an absolute corker. And yippee ki melon farmers. In Rated or Dated, (laughs) it's snowing blank paper promises as we watch 1988's Die Hard. Hello, Hannah here. I am joined by Cora Bissett, theatre director, playwright, actor and musician. Thank you for joining us, Cora. Oh, it's such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. That is quite the list, but I'm going to add a few more things to it. Former frontwoman of Darling Heart, and it's that experience which inspires your award-winning show, What Girls Are Made Of, which returns to the Edinburgh Fringe at the Assembly Rooms from August the 4th to August the 17th. How exciting. Yeah. And slightly terrifying. (laughs) Well, I want to ask you about that. You and I are the same age. 1993, I took a year off from university. And I was supposed to be earning lots of money. But basically, all I did is work and go to gigs. So I didn't actually save much money at all. And I thought, I've got to have seen Darling Heart. Because I think I saw, I mean, hundreds of bands in that period. And I had a bit of a research last night. And I reckon I did. (gasps) I saw Radiohead, Pablo Honeysaw. Yeah. For anyone who's interested in a bit of colour, After Dark in Reading. You supported them at all? I did, not the entire tour. So we, I think we did maybe a fortnight with them. 
I don't know how it all worked at the time. I was just, I just got told to get on a bus, pack my bag, and <laughs> just yeah. be there. You may have seen us, but yeah, we were we were on for one stint of it. Somewhere, my, my guitarist in the band, he obsessively collected all the flyers and stuff, so he will probably be able to tell you exactly which club we played. Well, that gig actually sticks in my mind for a number of reasons, obviously because I saw Radiohead, but also because somebody threw up on me there. <laughs> it was an age. You were allowed to do that, right? <laughs> Absolutely. It mostly just hit my trousers and fate, I have to say. For those listeners who didn't spend the early 90s just going to gigs, tell us about <laughs> Darling Heart. I mean, you were really young. Really young. I, I know, I was thinking about this recently. You know, at the time, you, you're, I was 17. I think I just turned 17. I was still at school when I joined the band. It sounds like you made it up, but it was absolute classic joining a band story. You know, I was still at school in Kirkcaldia, a wee town in Fife. I saw the ad in the, the high street. There was a little notice board where you could sit um, And there was also, it was also in the paper, the Fife Free Press. Band looking for singer. I think the three influences were R.E.M., Throne Muses, P.G. Harvey. I was like, I am in. Yes, please. Yes, please. That combo works. Never sung in a band. I was going to be in the school orchestra. I was, yeah, just kicking about being a, being a kid, really. This was totally my vibe. And went along and they gave me a Throne Muses song to, to sing. And I'd, I practiced the hell out of it. I don't know if they got... In fact, I'm pretty sure they didn't get anybody else in Coming to audition. <laughs> I'm like, this is an opportunity. But, you know, they were two wee kind of funny oddball guys that I don't think anybody thought they were particularly cool. And I was like, I'm all right with the funny oddball guys. I, I'm, they're, into, they're into PJ Harvey and throwing music, for God's sake. What's not to love? <laughs> so went along, did the audition, and uh, yeah, got the gig. Then the, the other girl, Catherine, who was the year below me in school, she was a drummer, amazing drummer. She then got, they, they pulled her in uh, quite soon after that. But yeah, we met up recently, me and Catherine, because she's going to be doing the show with me this summer. She now has teenage girls and we're looking at our girls and going, oh my God, we were children. Mm. We were literally, we'd never been to London in our lives and suddenly we were getting flown down to meet the record company and you know we were excited out our nuts Catherine was still doing her homework on the on the flight it was <laughs> we thought we were kind of sophisticated but looking back my god we were so innocent yeah <laughs> this is the third time you've done this show am I right yeah third time in Edinburgh it's actually it toured quite a lot internationally just before the pandemic the apocalypse uh, we'd been out to Brazil and the States and out to the Melbourne Festival and we had lots more lined up and then it all just kind of came to a crash but yes third time back to Edinburgh yeah you've got a daughter she's seven and as she ages as your daughter ages do your feelings towards this start to evolve? Yeah, absolutely. I think I think that's why I started to write the piece. It was, you know, because it was a part of my own personal history for a long time before I ever wrote about it. But I think it was losing my dad shortly before I, I fell pregnant with my daughter and I was cleaning out the attic. And you've probably heard this story if you've done any research on it. I, I literally found all my old diaries that charted that era. And I started to think about how... My mum and dad were about the age I was now. You know, I had my daughter a lot later than they, than they had me. And I just started to think about, oh, my God, what did it feel like to watch your daughter sign this? Well, they had to sign the contract for me because I wasn't old enough. And just go off in a in a tour bus mm. with some some guys and some dodgy looking blokes as your roadies and just have to let me roll with it. And at the time, you know, you're so full of that confidence of youth. You're mm. just like, oh. Mum and Dad, you know, just let me get on with it. What's the problem? Now, I look back at them and I think, 
holy shit, you must have been crapping it. You know, because I think of my daughter now and all those choices that I'm making about her safety but wanting to let her live her life Mm. and make her mistakes. And, you know, it's such a fine balance. I think I really appreciate, was it trust? Was it hope? You know, know, I did speak to her about it with my mum before she passed. And I said, you know, I I got a chance to say thank you for letting me do that that I get it now that that must have been really scary for you and she said oh Cora I was absolutely bloody terrified but you were going to do it anyway so better that I stayed in your camp I didn't want to lose you Mm. you were so bloody minded I just I had to just hope against hope that it was all going to be okay you know it is a different world in so many ways you know it's like playing as a kid as well I'm sure you've got similar stories You, you know I disappeared up the woods for the entire day and my mum knew roughly what area I was yeah. in but you know nobody could see us I was just hanging out in the woods making gang huts and tree swings for entire summer holidays and luckily nothing really bad ever did happen other than breaking the odd arm but I don't know if I'll be able to be like that with my daughter well that was going to be my next question yeah. Yeah. if your daughter comes to you at 17 and says mum I'd like to join a band I mean, what what emotion are you expecting to feel at that point? <laughs> I think I think it would be different. Actually, I I think I'm, oh, I'd be totally all for her joining a band. I'd love her to get in a band. There's such a brilliant music scene in Glasgow. She, mm. Yeah, I'm absolutely hundred percent behind it. If she got a record deal, I think I'd be a lot wiser to it. And obviously, I know a lot more people that are involved in the music industry now than I did at seventeen. Yeah. So I, I think um, although the world has changed, the industry has changed massively. I know that I'd be able to make the right calls to people and go, right, who's she getting in with here? You know, whereas my wee mum and dad were brought down to a cafe in Kirkcaldy and had to sign this 90-page contract. And looking back, I remember them just looking so innocent and sort of bamboozled. And mm. it was Catherine's mum and dad as well, signing this contract for two minors. Even if someone had explained the entire, you know, it was all in legalese. Would they know that was a good deal or a shit deal? Or a, it's just another world. So let's talk about the show. Now, okay. you've got a full band on stage with you. Yeah. Is that, is that your original band? Two of the, the, the bassist and the guitarist are brilliant actors who play my original bassist and guitarist, but they also play a multitude of other characters throughout the whole story. So it's my mate, Harry, very, very old friend who, who plays um, the bassist, but he also plays my mum. He also plays uh, the dodgy manager. He plays the record company exec. So, it, you know, a real kind of... Uh, amazing sort of spectrum of of acting roles the one other member from the band this time though is Catherine the drummer so before we'd always had a a drummer stand in and and play as Catherine because she was her kids were just a bit too young for her to commit to you know doing a long run with us but they're kind of fleeing the nest at the moment and she's finding herself nearing 50 going oh man I can't I can go and do the band thing again. <laughs> so I am delighted she's going to be joining me for the summer. And it's going to be so weird just, you know, looking behind me, you know, 30 yeah. years later and seeing Catherine banging it out on the drums going, oh my God, this is so weird. So that's that's kind of very enjoyable. Yeah. How different does it feel to be performing? Because you obviously, you continued in the arts and you perform in a different yeah. way. Now you're back, sort of, or you will be back again performing, as in standing on stage, you know, with a band behind you singing. How does that feel in comparison to all the other stuff you do? What marks music out as different to 
being on a stage for another reason? I think I've always carried the music into all the theatre I've made. Mm. Um, most of my most of my theatre work as a director, where I kind of dream up the idea, is heavily there's there's very often an element of live music not always written by me you know I work with loads of different composers brilliant brilliant artists and so I think I've always brought that sort of formative experience of being in a band where you just jam ideas out and you, you get you get the thing going together in a very collaborative way I think I've, I've sort of br- brought that into my theatre world um, I, I get a bit bored when people are talking too long <laughs> I'm like okay it's time for a song we, we need we need some guitars yeah. now I, I genuinely do. I, I really. I don't think my brain can absorb that much talking intensely. I kind of need to shake it up with music. And so I've really experimented with that form, not making traditional musical theatre, but making a lot of gig theatre and, and whatnot. Mm. But to go back to your question, <laughs> um, how does it feel different? There's just a live energy of it's you know it's literally reverberations I think you know when you can feel a drum kit behind you mm. and it's right through your whole body and you, you you feel the electricity of of a bass and a guitar and, and I love it when they're close you know I always love playing grungy wee gigs because they're right there and all yeah. the speakers are there and you know I think it is literal vibration through your body that you're not getting in the same way when it's non-live music mm. or or just acting on stage, she said, just acting. <laughs> I, that always brings back something really just visceral and kind of primal for me. And yeah, and I remember what that thrill was. But it's lovely to perform, you know, the, the band is there again, but I'm sort of at a, a really nice place in my life where I'm able to go, oh, remember how good this feels, but not worrying that it has to make it or it has you know it has to win yeah. a crowd over it. like it's just like ah oh, I can just be in this for a moment and remember it and enjoy it but it's okay the pressure's off and, and that whole other I don't I don't want to you know compete in that world yeah. anymore so yeah it's great it's a great buzz so you've done this very successfully before like you say you've toured and in Edinburgh you've had really successful runs you've oh by all the metrics you've sold out you've won awards you've got great reviews does that make it easier or harder to go back and do it again? <laughs> that is a really good question. I know, yeah, it, in some ways, you know, you carry the weight of expectation. But the past few festivals, obviously, they've, they've been very reduced in recent years because of the pandemic. But last year, I was just just hanging out. I didn't have a show on. I was just seeing shows myself as a punter. And I got stopped by about... 10 different women that uh, recognised me from from the show, which is really freaky for me because I'm a jobbing artist making my work, but uh, I'm not someone that gets stopped in the street. So I, I was really taken aback and they went, oh my God, the What Girls Are Made Up show. They were like, are you going to bring that back? I'm dying to bring my teenage daughter to see it. And even some men as well stopped me who really, really wanted to watch it with their with their next generation. Um, which is something that we saw happen a lot, even during the initial runs, um, people would come with a bunch of mates, really enjoy it and then go, actually, this is this is a story for mothers and daughters and fathers and daughters. A lot of dads oh. would come up to me and, and be really moved by... There's a lot about my mum and dad in it. There's a lot about parenting generally. There's there's a lot of love. There's a lot of love and getting to appreciate your parents in the story. You know, it starts as a big rock and roll journey, but actually the play is very much about growing up and, and seeing 
seeing your parents as an adult I th- and I think that's probably why people really love coming with, mm. with their teenage kids they're, you know they're, there's something quite bonding there so yeah I kind of thought you know this is a reason to bring it back there's still a hunger for this and when we announced it there was like, such a lovely buzz around it it's always nerve-wracking going oh my god will we fill those big spaces again it would be terrible mm. to, to have it kind of quiet but I think you just you just Take the gamble and you, and you go for it. I, I always felt when things got stopped short due to the pandemic that this had a, a lot more life in it. And so I'm hoping we'll give it another whirl. I never fight to bring shows back if I feel they've, you know, done their time. Some shows just live in a moment and, and that is their moment and they have a thing to say to that moment in time. But I feel like what girls are made of, it's quite timeless in a way. You know, it's set in the 90s, but it's very much about appreciating what what you have earned on the ups and downs of life and applying it to now and looking at what you can offer to your kids you Mm. know because I think generation of kids coming up now as we know spoken about a lot just how different their world is with the digital lives that they lead with the with the online platforms that they're on that is just alien to a lot of the ways that we interacted and you know I'm in many ways I'm terrified about helping my daughter navigate that stuff but I feel like what we can do and what I think is timeless and doesn't change is helping them build mental resilience. And I think that's what my mum and dad gave me. And I think that's why even when the shit hit the fan with the whole record company turning up, you know, you know, just getting spat out from it all, I never truly sunk. I, I was I felt like I was rock bottom, but I kinda went, Okay, I've got some tools to get me out of this having those tools to go I, I don't know what the answer is right now and this looks really shit from the outside but I'm going to get out of this and I'm going to work out how to do it and it might take me five years and it might take me 10 years but I'm going to work out how I how I get back up and mm. find out what hell it is I've got to bring to the table here. That's a really good point because if you're in the arts I mean then I've worked in and around it for ages and I, I did comedy for a long time if people have the impression that you're quite sort of flighty and you're quite sort of soft is a word I don't know if I if is the right word to use but that you take things really personally that you but actually it makes you tough and it makes you take rejection just like yeah all right you get rejected all the time all the time and sometimes it's more painful than other times but you just think well okay that didn't work out something else yes and yeah that's an incredible lesson to learn from from life because the truth is When when this happened to you, it, it may or may not have felt like the worst thing, but actually, weirdly, it's reactivated later and you built on it. And that's why shit things happen to you, so that you get something from them, that you learn something yeah, from them. You and you learn yeah. some sort of lesson. And yeah. you can use them later. Yeah, that's really interesting to me. Yeah. One more thing that I want to ask you about. I interviewed Lucy O'Brien recently, who's like a music journalist. She writes lots of books about famous women in music. And most recently, I was talking to her about Karen Carpenter. And I asked her how she thought the music industry had changed for women between, obviously, between Karen Carpenter and now. And she, yeah, using examples, you know, like Taylor Swift and Billie Eilish, women that are much, much more in control of their own careers than perhaps women were in the past. That's good examples. Yeah. I mean, would you agree with that? Do you do you think that were this happening to you now with Darling Heart, do you think it would be different now? Do you think music industries treat young people, working class people, women with more respect now than they have before? Wow, it's such a good question. I can only guess because obviously I'm I'm not really in, in mm. it now, you know, kind of on, on the periphery looking at it. I think young women are way more savvy than I was and, you know, way more 
I think just the information out there about the industry is so much more known. The industry itself has changed out of all proportion. I mean, I guess getting a record deal isn't what it meant, you know, 30 years ago. Mm. It's so many people are putting their own music out, recording their own stuff. The very idea that someone would pay for you to go into a studio was was a mega thing in the 90s. But of course, everybody can make their music at home, can get it out there immediately. So in some ways, I feel there's a brilliant barrier that's been dropped. There's not the kind of gatekeepers that it, they don't you know I don't think the record companies hold the same sort of power mm. that they did and yeah and, and there's just a lot uh, yeah I just think young people are probably just a lot more savvy generally <laughs> they've got better business minds they're thinking about just on social media they can they can connect with communities that just know how to, you know how to run a band how to make it happen for yourself but nonetheless you know you only need to look at statistics and we've still got what's it, two-thirds of live music acts in the UK right now feature no women on stage. That was from a Guardian report. Laura Marling, I was, I was reading an interview with, with her recently, and she was saying, you know, the, the barriers are still there massively from being discouraged to play guitar. And even the execs in our mm. company saying, you know, maybe you shouldn't play so much. And, you know, bizarre, bizarre things like that. Festival headliners in the UK, is it still eight out of ten were male in in the past recent years? So there's still a massive discrepancy in terms of the the power balance. Um, I think there's a wealth of brilliant female artists. It's certainly not about there being a dare. That's just absolute bollocks. So there's mm. there's clearly um, gatekeepers that are are protecting that male dominated side of the industry. But I I think there's an an incredible wealth of talent right out. What I'm seeing locally, just with the the great music scene in Glasgow, I've got friends in their early 40s who, who just started putting their albums out you know or oh, wow. they were always on the scene yeah brilliant artists like Catherine Joseph, Jill Lorian very much well Catherine's more of a mainstream figure Jill a wee bit more on the underground scene you know who are working mums they're juggling their lives they're, I meet them on the school run you yeah. know but Catherine won the C Awards a few years back the Scottish Album of the Year Awards you know at 41 as a single mum and that was just unheard of yeah, but she and I just thought that's brilliant as well. Mm-hmm. That this obsession with being the bright young little cheeky bird on the scene isn't kind of what it was. I think I think that's as radical and groundbreaking. I did very much feel when I was we were signed in the band, and I'm sure the lads felt it at the time. You know, the fact that they had the 17 year old and the 16 year old. There was, it was you know, a golden moment. For it. it was like, oh my god, I've got these teenagers in the mm-hmm. band, and they're kind of pretty young girls, and I was sort of aware of it. And I was like, God, I hope it's not just this. And I, and I don't think it was. I, you know, it, we, it couldn't have just um, ridden out on that. But I think being the the, the all that focus on being the, the just the, the young girl is not healthy because you know you're you're not going to stay that for a start. You're going to get yeah, older. Quite, yeah. You want to be you know feel secure that you can you can create whatever age you are, and it's not about that. That it's not resting on your on your youth. So, I, I think there's some great groundbreakers like like Catherine and Jill that are just doing their thing at the age they're at and they've probably got a hell of a lot more to say as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Um, you are also, as a woman, you know, and great example this weekend, uh, Billy No Mates at Glastonbury, just, you know, yeah. absolutely hammered by people having an opinion on everything except her musical talent it appeared you know uh just yeah. just what you look like and how you present yourself you will yeah. always be judged more harshly always. as a woman always i there's a scene in the show where i'm taken to be kind of styled um you know by this uh, very kind of upmarket photographer and uh, 
you know, I was a wee bumpkin. I was a wee indie kid coming out of the backwaters in fine. And my, I think my look was generally wee tatty vintage dress, thick woolly tights and a pair of Doc Martens and a big cardi. I thought that was sexy. Oh, man, man you've just literally described what I wore for about, yeah, a year solidly. <laughs> like just enormous I mean... thick woolen tights and then a really flowery <laughs> summer dress and 16-hole Doc Martens. And my dad used to say to me all the time, I know you think you look, you look individual, Hannah, but it's just a uniform. He used to say that to me all the time. <laughs> You, it's my uniform. Exactly. Yeah. I used to stick bloomers on underneath. I think that's how I individualize my uniform. <laughs> bloomers on underneath. I mean, it's so funny because it was so not about trying to show our shape, and mm. you know, it was almost hiding it. But you know, in your own way, you thought that was kind of kind of cool and tantalizing. I thought it was a great look. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I, I still rock the docks and the the docks and the vintage dress number. Oh, where was I going with that? Um, the stylist, and I remember she got me in a hotel. It was a woman, bizarrely enough, who they'd hired in. And looking back now, I think that was a manipulation in its own way. I think they were like, ah, oh, Coral, kind of trust. It's a, you know, a nice woman. Yeah. She can kind of charm her. It was only me out of the whole band. And she got me on this big kind of chaise long in the Caledonian Hotel. And I brought a reel of little, little flouncy dresses, like really kind of little skimpy numbers. And it, she kind of, she sort of, did it very gradually. She started off in the more demure ones and then just got more and more and more kind of skimpy. And then she'd like, yeah, just kind of slouch out on the couch there, Cora, that's great. Um, okay, can we just turn upside down? Can you just hang your head off the couch? And by that point, I'm like, oh man, I'm not really <laughs> digging them. And then she got me to kind of put my feet up between the, the curtains and, and sort of pull the curtains apart with my feet. Really, really suggestive. And it just wasn't my vibe. That's not, it's not yeah. what I was a it's not what I was trying to sell it's but before I knew it I was doing it and I just even in the moment I just didn't have the power I'm sure young women now would be so different I feel like you know young women now have such a hold on an authority of their identity and Mm -hmm. how they want to be I just didn't have that language I didn't have those words and so I did it and you know all these pictures came back and me half naked on this wee couch with my legs part in the curtains and I saw the contact sheet I remember the manager bringing it around to to view it and I I burst out crying I was like a my mum is gonna kill me (laughs) and b that's not what I'm putting out in the world I know that much in myself Mm. that's that's not what I'm trying to do you know and they really got angry because apparently she'd cost a fortune she'd been flown in from Berlin and the manager went mental at me just for wasting his time and whatnot and they finally used one of the shots that was just my head but ironically so they, they kind of you know conceded that much but then that shot the headshot appeared in GQ a couple of weeks later the quote underneath it was Cora Bissett says her album uh, sounds like oral sex up a dark alley with a stranger I can assure you Cora Bissett said nothing of the sort oh Christ I, utter fabrication and of course my mum my mum got a hold of it because one of the teachers at her school her son had read it he's like check this <laughs> and uh, so my mum I was still living at home hauled me down the stairs what is this and of course I'm you know trying to say mum those are not my words I yeah. swear to God and she's like well they just wouldn't make it up oh, oh bless her what? yeah they would <laughs> I know <laughs> wow yeah And so even from those, you know, just horrible, horrible, clearly 
picturing this little teenage girl and just trying to turn it and make me, literally make me say things that I've not said. And I, I, I remember at that point, actually, just feeling quite scared. I realised I was in a really, I was in the shark pool and I had yeah. no tools. I, I didn't know how to navigate this shark pool at all. And so a lot of the time in Darling Heart, I, th- I was enjoying the, the kind of mad roller coaster of it. But I was scared as well. I felt so out of my depth. I, I, I just, oh God, I was, I was really at sea. I was trying my damnedest to just go for it. Um, but yeah, looking back, I was, yeah, I was so out of my depth. Yeah. Now, if people don't want to go and see what girls are made of after all of that, Cora, I, I, can't, I can't help them. <laughs> Hello, I'm joined on the Zoom by award-winning journalist and editor, author, podcast host and midlife expert, Lorraine Candy. Lorraine, hello. Hi. I mean, I'm going to start by asking you, what are we terming midlife these days? Well, I mean, it seems to change, but I would say 40 to 60 would be midlife. But it's more that middle bit of life, you know, where you're going through huge transitions, you're moving out of family, people are moving out of home, you might be looking after elderly parents. It's more the stage rather than the age. We get a bit fixated, I think, on age. And then we seem to act to the age that the ideas society has put around that age. So I do make the point quite clearly in my book that, you know, if you didn't have to say how old you were, you probably wouldn't feel the same way about how old you were. Absolutely. Just one of the things in your book that had me nodding along in agreement. Uh, Before we get to your book, which we will, you introduced me to the term noggling and I was so taken with it. Noggling through. And felt it resonate so hard that I was compelled to write noggling in capital letters in a notebook. Can you explain (laughs) the concept of noggling through to our listeners, please? Well, it's just pushing on through hard times, you know, I mean, it's you're just noggling through. I just found it quite apt emotional description of that sort of slightly troublesome, wearisome, pushing on through difficulty all the time. I feel it's, um, I mean, obviously it's not a gendered term, but I just think so many women will be like, that is the word that I have been looking for that describes yeah. what I do so much of my life. Yeah, it's annoying, isn't it? It's frustrating. <laughs> and then you get to a point of life where, you know, rather like being um, in It's a Knockout, which is a Gen X reference, really, you everything's being thrown at you and you're still having to noggle through because <laughs> you have all this new stuff happening, which if you knew about, you'd be prepared for. But, you know, this generation don't know about. Millennials, I think they will know about. I mean, I've already been talking to women in their early 40s who are saying, oh, I know what's coming now. I feel a bit more reassured. I was, I'm a bit fearful, but I know what I can do and I'm more reassured. Whereas we, we noggled through and were surprised. Everything was just thrown at us. Absolutely. I mean, you can tell you're a long-term journalist because you've just sort of led really neatly into my next question. So about eight years ago, when Standard Issue was a magazine, the marvellous Jane Hill wrote a piece for us called The Fleece of Despair. And it was all about her perimenopause, which she realised she was going through when she bought this horrific fleece that she was like, why am I wearing this? And why is it the only thing I want to wear now? The response to that article was huge. Women just seemed so relieved to see that experience, a sort of take on their experience written down. And as you've just touched on, there has been a real shift in the landscape over the last few years when it comes to talking about midlife women, particularly around the perimenopause and the menopause. 
and I am 46, so I've definitely taken my tentative first few steps into it. And I, I am a bit fearful, but I feel lucky that that conversation is happening. So thank you for being a, a big thank part you. of that. But also, what age do you think women need to start listening? Uh, 16. Yeah. I think you need to start in your teenage years. We need to teach girls at school about their hormones. We need to teach them properly about their menstrual cycle. We need to teach them about asking what they need from the medical profession. We need to teach them to value their health above everything else and to take it totally seriously. And it's not about medicalizing anything. I know it's been a bit of criticism in the press recently about, I mean, there always is when women start talking, a lot of women start talking about something and people get nervous and say, oh, they shouldn't be talking about this. It's They're medicalizing it. It's a natural thing. A lot of these things are not natural. Childbirth is the least natural thing I went through four times. There's a lot of issues around girls and their periods and contraception. Not natural, need a lot of help with it. We're not medicalizing it. We're just putting it out there saying, this is the information, get your information and then just get on with your life. Because actually being a midlife woman, being a perimenopausal woman is a, is a really magnificent, brilliant thing. I mean, I'm entering that bit of life, I'm nearly 55, where I really don't give a shit anymore. I, I'm not worried about what people think. I'm not worried or influenced by how people feel about what I do. I'm taking time for myself, finding a new energy. Now I've got the hormones that I needed to get through. So I think it's all about telling girls and young women right at the beginning of their life and their hormonal cycle what's going on so they can talk about it. You think about all those young teenagers suffering with endometriosis, mm -hmm. the early stages of endometriosis, and doctors telling them it's just period pain, go away. And actually really significant effect on their day-to-day -day lives. Not fair, can't go on anymore. So we should be talking about it. In your book, which is called What's Wrong With Me, absolutely cracking title, by the way, and a question that I do ask myself on the regular these days, <laughs> for sure, you talk about looking back and how, particularly for us Gen Xers, and I'm at the tail end of Gen X, but definitely in that category, there's so much stuff that we just noggled through, right? We just put up with it. It's just what women do. And particularly with something like the Me Too movement recently, you look back at those experiences again and kind of go, oh, fuck. Oh, right. I see. And you just mentioned periods there. I was on hardcore painkillers from when I was 13. You know, when my mum hadn't not taken them all for a headache. But like, why was that a thing? Yeah. It's oh, not fair. It's not fair. It shouldn't be happening. No. Midlife for women is a particularly sticky patch that comes with a lot of big in capital letter moments to deal with, as well as the perimenopause. But I'm going to stay positive because you're positive and you've just said, you know, you feel you, magnificent. You need to be. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, it's not a bad thing. It's just the information isn't there. You know, we just need to be given the information and taken seriously. I don't like writing about myself. It may look like I do, but I don't particularly like it. But the thing I felt was invisible about after the age of about 44, 45. Invisible and then going through all these changes and then nobody listening to me. And I realised so many other women were feeling that. And I thought, this is just unfair. And the only way to not be invisible is to be really loud <laughs> and to really <laughs> tell your story. And the only way to make women identify and get the help they need is if they think other women are doing it too. They really don't want to feel alone in this place because women tend to put on a cloak of shame. They put on a cloak of guilt. This is society tells us we need to feel guilty about a lot of things, that we should be shameful about a lot of things. And if we are all talking about it, then we don't have to wear that guilt and that shame and we don't have to feel depressed about it. We can be really positive and upbeat about 
you know, where we're going. And in many parts of the world, they, they worship older women, the elder women, the wiser women. You know, and if you go right the way through back to is it culture and medieval times, you know, witches were midwives. They were landowners, you know, but they were, they were again, the patriarchy took over, killed them all yep. because they were entering their power. Most women over 40 are entering a new stage and having a new power. But we get these issues alongside it, so we just need to sort them out. I absolutely knew what I was going to ask you. And then I read your book, What's Wrong With Me? And I decided to sort of stick to the themes, but to try to make this chat as positive as possible. Because while you absolutely don't pull any punches about the realities of midlife and the perimenopause, your book and indeed your podcast, Postcard for Midlife, are hugely comforting really comforting and Um, your positivity and ability to offer that comfort is clearly both hard won but also thanks to other women's stories right and that sharing community it's the reassurance of not being alone that pulls women through and one of the things I found so I interviewed a lot of women for my book and obviously we have a massive community around us on the podcast and I have a massive community around me from editing big glossy magazines with women who knew who I was because that magazine was a really important part of their life. Uh-huh. And I got all these stories back and I got a thirst for knowledge. I didn't get a massive negativity and a horrible fear. I got to kind of tell me what's wrong with me so I can sort it out first for knowledge. And you have to present that, I think, in a comforting, reassuring way. But I also interviewed a lot of experts and discovered that, you know, midlife women are phenomenal. We have put up with some of the problems I still got on to do massive jobs, master the family, game-changing things across our industries while going through all these issues. Imagine if you didn't have to do that. You could do these amazing things and not feel crap about yourself and crap with everything that's going on at the same time. How phenomenal would that be? And I think, you know, I think there's a bit of a sexual revolution happening for women in midlife too because some of the symptoms of perimenopause are so appalling for women sexually and in their sex lives. But now we can cure them. We can cure them with over-the-counter remedies. Imagine you get that sexual energy and that sexual power back as well. You know, you can see why all the columnists are writing how dare these women talk about their midlife and their menopause because it's incredibly threatening. (laughs) You know, when you've got an army of women who don't feel alone, who've got their tribe around them, who are full of this energy, whether it's sexual or, you know, for their work, for their families and everything, and they're ready to go and do big things. You know, finding your tribe in midlife as well is really, really important. I made a lot of new friends in midlife and I think you seek out the women, you become a bit softer, so you're a bit more vulnerable, and you seek out women who can help you, and you ask for their help, which up until then you probably wouldn't have done, particularly Gen X, because they've got such an endurance mindset, it's ridiculous. Yeah, we're, I think we're doers, doers and the have it all, or yeah, fucking albatross round our necks. <laughs> yeah, totally. Now, softer, softness, is a word that comes up time and time again in your book, and not just about midlife bellies it's about like the whole thing right be softer on and kinder to ourselves now I know there will be some women listening rolling their eyes at this point because a lot of us just don't know how to do it and it just seems impossible but it sounds like we have to learn like it's it's absolutely life-changing to learn that do you think we resist it because it feels like slowing down and why do we think slowing down is bad I think the eye-rolling from the particular woman that eye-rolls when women talk about menopause and perimenopause comes from fear. 
I think it comes from a very rigid set of beliefs that are so entrenched in a system, patriarchal system, it's what society has told us to do. Roll our eyes if someone tells us we can get help. Roll our eyes if we talk about yoga. Roll our eyes if if we talk as a collective about loving each other and looking after each other. It's ridiculous. There's so much science behind it. There's so much neurology behind it. You're ignoring facts if you start eye-rolling around this kind of thing. And I say uh-huh. that as a proper journalist who's fact-checked and double-checked everything and read all the surveys, read all the statistics, talked to all, all the experts on both sides of every camp. So don't roll your eyes because that's daft. It's not helping. It's, it's just not helping you. It's mad. It's a mad thing to do. So this softness, which happens from a, actually from a neurological point of view when more creative bits of our brain come alive and we start to listen to our gut instinct properly because we have the experience to do that, is really, really helpful. If you just back off a little bit and you make time in your day to give yourself time to recharge because ageing is going to take it out of you anyway. But when you've been working at a manic level for a very long time, you are slightly burnt out. And I found that with many, many women I interviewed. And I did interview women from really diverse backgrounds, not just kind of white middle-class women that, you know, often we're criticised as the only women talking about this at the moment. And I'm not from a middle-class background. I come from a really rural area in Cornwall. I left school at 16. So I've talked to all women from all colours, black women, brown women. I talked to lots of doctors who worked in different communities. So this softening, this applies to us all. (laughs) You know, it's not a luxury. You know, it's not a wellness thing. This is about giving our minds space to look after ourselves so that we live longer. It's about making our hearts healthier it's about giving ourselves time to do exercise so we don't get osteoporosis because all these things are killers of women you know they're the big killers of women heart disease is the biggest killer of women it's terrible Uh you know we don't soften and start to listen to our bodies and our minds we know the body tells the story of the mind we absolutely know that from science now if we don't soften we can't hear that so we have to do it so we we shouldn't be rolling our eyes around it we should just give in and do it why do you think it is so hard for some of us to give ourselves permission to do that? Because society has told us that women are weak and if they show softness and vulnerability, they are even weaker in a weak stage of, of life because youth is so highly valued and, and has such a value around it and, and older ageing doesn't have that value. It, you know, it should do because you come with the wisdom and also the alternative is, is death, isn't it? So it's such a privilege to, to be an yeah, older totally. person and to be ageing. I think it's also that Gen X mindset. We were told you could have it all and we heard you can do it all. And I think that's the, Mm. you know, so we did do it all. We had to be the best mothers and we had to be the best people at work. There was always just one place for a woman at a senior level. So all of us had to go for it. We come from a very hard generation, a very hard mindset. We grew up with a cultural background of women being consistently made fun of and not visible, you know, Benny Hill, nurses as Halloween costumes. I mean, Mm. it was very toxic. So that would set you in a mindset where you would perhaps be less open and you think, well, I'll just endure it and keep enduring it. I just think it's really, it's daft to, to roll your eyes around it and to continue with that endurance mindset. I don't think it benefits anyone really apart from the patriarchy. Now, you and I come from similar but different backgrounds on magazines. You worked for the Women's Glossies and by worked, I mean, you know, you ran them like your editor of Cosmopolitan, the biggest one for such a long time. And I have a history in Lads Mags, both of which were toxic in their own different ways, right? This um, is true, yes. Yeah. 
So somewhat unusually for Standard Issue, I am going to talk to you about looks because you're very open in What's Wrong With Me about talking about how you have definitely shifted your view of stuff from when you worked on those magazines, but also how advertising rules what you are allowed to say and what you're allowed to talk about in those magazines. But yeah. however you feel about arbitrary beauty standards and however much we know it is a privilege to age, the change in our physical selves can be a lot to deal with, right? Yeah, it's really hard, I think. It is the change in our physical selves linked to culturally what we're supposed to look like and all the values we've kind of grown up with and absorbed in a sponge-like way. But it's also, it's our identity. So our identity changes with our bodies. And I think that's, you know, it's all into your identity is intrinsically linked with what you look like and how you feel about yourself when you look in the mirror. So I think uh-huh. it's it's an ongoing exploration. I think very much in society now, whenever you have a discussion about body image or gender or sexuality or anything you have to have a black and white view you have to be on this side or you have to be on that side and actually that's not how I want to conduct it anymore you know it's it's the gray bit in the middle is the interesting bit so what we feel about it how we feel about it you know I'm often asked what about everybody has all those treatments they're all just trying to look younger those women are just trying to hang on to their youth maybe they're not you know that's up to them that's their choice I don't judge it either way maybe there's other things going on we don't know other people's stories so we can't land on either side of these arguments I certainly wish I'd been more helpful to women and questioned more of the journalism that went in magazines but in in other ways I'm so glad that I did a lot of the journalism that went in magazines because you know I have lots of messages and letters and things from women whose whose lives have been changed for the better by things I've written and done and, and issues that I've edited so you know, it's an ongoing discussion, this thing around our looks and how a woman should look at a certain age. And as I say in the book, if we didn't apply an age, you know, we had a really brilliant uh, guest on the podcast, Michelle Gunderhin, who said, I won't, te- I don't want to talk about how old I am and I won't tell you how old I am. And she's a contemporary of mine. She used to edit Elle Deco. She now works on TV. And she said, I don't say it because everybody makes a thousand assumptions about you before you've even appeared in the room. And I'd rather those assumptions weren't made. And I don't say it, she said, because mentally, I don't want to feel a specific thing that society, Western industrialised society, makes me want to feel. And I think that's a really great way. It's not about her not wanting to say her age because she's ashamed of it. It's about her positively not wanting to say her age because she wants to judge herself for herself, not by the that metric of your age that society judges us by. It's so true. It is so true. There was a bit in the looks bit that really freaked me out, though. And I don't know why I've not thought about this before. (laughs) This is when I say you don't pull any punches. And it was about my gums losing collagen. And I was like, what the fuck? I know. Well, you just don't know all of that is going to happen. If your gums (laughs) lose collagen, the shape of your face changes, which is an unexpected, you know, like one of the symptoms of perimenopause is tinnitus. I mean, who knew that, you know, who knew that? collagen going from various parts of your body would change the shape of them you just don't think it through I mean it's neither here nor there but it's it is a worrying thing I've got a heightened sense of smell that's one of my things from the yeah that's really really common actually we are we I asked actually asked a menopause doctor about that last week because it was asked so many times um on the Facebook page because a lot of women get it when they get pregnant mm. as well a different sense of smell they don't know because no one's researched it Quite a lot of stuff they don't know because no. Why would you bother? It's only women. Why would we I research? I'm not even going to bother to get women. my surprise face out. There. No, don't get upset about that. It's a waste <laughs> of your energy. 
Let's go back to your podcast, which is called Postcard from Midlife. And you and Trish Halpin, your co-host, also chat to women the other side of menopause, which again offers so much more comfort and also, you know, warning tales, all of that. Can you tell us about the second spring, which, you know, again, I didn't really know very much about. I know it's a it's a phenomenal thing to look forward to. So for both the podcast and actually for the book, I interviewed women in their 60s, 70s and 80s because I wondered what, you know, the future would be like. And this sense of liberation, because when your fertility or your childbearing years come to an end, there is a sense of liberation as well. You're relieved of periods and all, all the physical things change. Once you've gone through the hormonal changes, there is this here I am now, this is where my body settles, this is who I am, you know, my hair's changed, I've changed. So there's this sense of you can create who you want to be. And it's a bit like being a teenager again when you're, you know, your brain's being rebuilt and your sense of identity is being made. It's a similar thing. Your brain is undergoing changes in midlife because of the lack of estrogen and your identity is being remade. So as these women have got older, they just told me tales from the other side of absolutely relishing the fact that time is the only commodity worth anything really at this point so you mm-hmm. can worry about your stuff and your houses and all your things it doesn't really matter time's the most valuable thing to you so make the most of it and we have these amazing women on on our facebook page which goes with the podcast who are going off and doing fantastic things they're skydiving solo traveling so a lady this morning's going on a 150 kilometer hike on her own because she's fi- her last child has finally left home they're finding all these new things in life as they get older and it's you know I just look forward to that stage and think well I can do that then maybe that's going to be brilliant and in the second spring women change their attitude so things open up to them that perhaps are totally different I interviewed a lot of women who completely changed it was wasn't just a pivot in their career they shut one one down and started again and they would look back on the other career and think what was that all about I can't remember when I was a doctor I am now you know, a, a, a travel agent running blah, blah, blah. So it's, it is chance for enormous change. Sitting in change is quite difficult, but I think you get old enough to understand that you can't be happy every day. You learn a lot from being sad. You learn a lot from despair. You learn a lot from grief. You go through what a psychologist said to me were living losses, things, you know, loss of your childbearing years, loss of your children leaving home, loss of your mothering, loss of your career identity. You you go through those losses you sit with them, you endure the pain a bit, and then you plant a few seeds and you start to watch those seeds grow into new things. And that's the kind of magnificent bit of it. And it's easier to do and quicker to get to if you get the support in your actual sort of 40s. (laughs) Absolutely. And I think we have been sold in the way that women are quite often sold stuff as a negative package. And the change, the changes are always going through the change. It's always said with pity or like confusion or just dismissal. I think it's time of a real spirited rebirth for some people. And I think this is where the slowing down comes in. So I'm not talking about a kind of exhausting reinvention because that, that's no good. You don't want to go through and start again and work at the same speed. This slowing down of your life allows you to listen to what you're thinking about inside, um, which many experts told me neurologically is a very good thing to do. So taking an hour to do nothing quietens the mind I mean you can meditate you can do yoga you do whatever you want to do at that time but you quieten the mind and you stop distracting yourself with this constant busyness and you can really think about things and stuff that's in the subconscious will just pop up I mean that's it if you release that you're in a different flow state 
if you, this all sounds very woo woo, and obviously I, would, <laughs> I am very anti woo woo, but it makes scientific, complete scientific sense that you slow down, and in that more slower state, stuff will occur to you, and you will remember things, and then you will think about things in a slightly different way, and you will take time for yourself, and your body will start to repair. You know, sleep is at the core of everything we do. It's really our, it's the big thing we have to do. Sleep and connection to others are the two big things you've really got to get a grip on in midlife. And when you do that, when you slow down, you get a better connection to others, you get better sleep. And from that, the second spring is great. You, you're not going to go into this huge change, this space between one and two at speed in exactly this, with the same mindset as you had before, because you, you won't be well, you won't be healthy. So many women who are my age or that little bit older and are obviously in the stage of our lives and who were absolute workaholics, that was their identity, it's what they did. I've noticed them slowing down and it's absolutely beautiful to see them reclaiming other bits of life that bring them much more nourishment. It's not and again, easy I'm sounding a bit woo-woo. I know, it's not easy to do. You know, I thought, when, when I left Sunday Times Style three and a bit years ago, four years ago, I just then packed my diary with stuff I said yes to everything I just kept going in the same manic speedy state because I didn't want to think about the change I did I was uncomfortable with sitting with feelings I was uncomfortable with feeling all the feelings I'd been so clearly in leadership roles I'd done three to four you know I was writing a book doing a podcast editing a weekly magazine bringing up four children I was not used to making space in the diet felt very very self-indulgent yeah. but I had done enough research to know that I would break if that was, you know, I would would have been very unwell, I think. And why is it so bad to indulge ourselves sometimes? I mean, it's obviously oh, I quite know. a healthy thing to do, isn't it? Yeah. I know. I, 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 we, we got a puppy at one point and, um, at, before I left Style. And uh, I remember I was between jobs. I was leading Ellen. I was going to Style and we had this puppy and I had uh, gardening leave. I wasn't able to take up the new job. So I had four months where I had to sort of sit at home. And I spent all my days caring for her and loving her and thinking, God, it'd be nice if someone did that for me. <laughs> <laughs> There's so much more we could go into, but, you know, time is a precious commodity, so I am going to wrap this up. What's Wrong With Me is out now and available from all good bookshops and postcards from midlife can be found wherever you get your podcasts, you know, like where you're listening to this one. I have one last question. When it comes to postcards for midlife, are you menopausal Morecambe or are you menopausal wise? <laughs> I think I'm... I don't know. I think Morecambe, probably. I'm a bit silly. <laughs> Lorraine, where can people follow what you're up to on the socials, please? I'm on Instagram at Lorraine Candy, on Twitter at Lorraine Candy, on Facebook. We have a Postcards from Midlife Facebook page. And uh, I downloaded threads this morning, so who knows what's going to happen with that. Thank you so much for chatting with me. Thank you for having me, Mickey. Welcome to Rated or Dated. Mickey, tell me about the time Alan Rickman was put in charge of the Lost Boys. <laughs> oh, that is true. That is true. I'm not going to lie, Hannah. This week's Rated or Dated took ages. First of all, I had to get the Christmas decorations out of Narnia, check all the lights were working. And do you know how hard it is to source a Christmas tree at this time of year? In the end, I just dumped it all on a pot plant, so the mood was set to watch seminal, you heard me, seminal action movie, Die Hard, in which Bruce Willis's John McClane 
saves the day and surely captures all but the very hardest of hearts. Are you using seminal in the sense of it's got a lot of spunk in it? There's a lot of spunk <laughs> in both attitude and potential sticky issue. Yeah. <laughs> Look, I'm not here to dispel anyone's fiercely held belief that Die Hard is a Christmas film, but I am here with the facts, one of which is that Die Hard was released mid-July 1988 in the States and early February 1989 in the UK. Hannah, is Die Hard a Christmas movie? Yippee-ki-yay or yippee-ki-nay? Yippee-ki-nay, I would say. The fact that it is Christmas is kind of superfluous to the plot, I think. I mean, I'm going to say clearly it is It is a Christmas movie. It takes place on Christmas Eve into Christmas morning. There are festive parties. There are Santa jokes. The main female character is called Holly. There's holiday cheer and machine guns and songs and everything is sorted by the end. And there's some sort of really important saviour doing his thing. Also, both director John McTiernan and writer Stephen D'Souza have confirmed that it is indeed a Christmas movie. So that verdict's in. People will always argue about it, though. Anyway, right, all that aside, Die Hard, based on former cop Roderick Thorpe's 1979 novel Nothing Lasts Forever, was very nearly a very different film. The role of McLean was turned down by a host of the decade's most popular actors, including Arnold Schwarzenegger and Sylvester Stallone. And thank fuck for that. I've got a soft spot for both of those hard men, but with Arnie or Stallone as our protagonist, Die Hard would have just been another 1980s one-man army movie, instead of something sort of softer, warmer, funnier, and altogether more charming, while still nails obs. Mm. According to my brother, Frank Sinatra was also offered the role of John McClane. They had to offer Frank Sinatra the role of John McClane because it's a kind of sequel to a film he starred in called The Detective. Ah, interesting. He turned it down, and well... <laughs> Thank goodness. <laughs> I think best for everyone involved. <laughs> Bruce Willis was, at the time, seen as a TV actor, and as a kid, I'd certainly been made uncomfortable watching my mum's reaction to him as private detective David Addison in Moonlighting. No one needs to see their mum's hungry face. (laughs) But unlike my little ma, bigwigs were not convinced that Willis's trademark squint and lopsided smirk, everyman persona, and way more vulnerability than was usual at the time, would cut it. (laughs) <laughs> Die Hard grossed approximately $140 million, was the year's 10th highest grossing film. Its highest grossing action film got four Academy Award nods, elevated Willis to leading man status, made the glorious Alan Rickman in his first ever film role a celebrity, and is now regarded as one of the best action movies ever. Contemporary critics, however, weren't massively sure about Die Hard, praising McTiernan's direction and Rickman's performance, but not necessarily convinced by Willis's transition to the big screen. Die Hard was also one of several 1988 films labelled morally objectionable by the Roman Catholic Church, along with The Last Temptation of Christ, Bull Durham and A Fish Called Wanda. Pissing off the Catholics aside, Die Hard was one of the most influential films of the 1980s, and served as a blueprint for action films that came after, especially throughout the 1990s. Indeed, the term die-hard on or inner has become shorthand to describe a lone everyman hero who must overcome an overwhelming opposing force in a relatively small and confined location. So, Under Siege, 1992, die-hard on a battleship. Cliffhanger, 1993, die-hard on a mountain. 
Speed, 1994, Die Hard on a Bus, mm-hmm. and Air Force One, 1997, Die Hard on a Plane. I would also say Con Air is Die Hard on a Plane. Yes, that is true. Particularly since they have the inside man talking to the outside man. Yeah, that is true. Yeah, Bit of a I bromance going there on. There is a lovely, yeah. lovely bromance. Oh, Con Air. Hey, we're talking Die Hard. Sorry. It's all right. Any excuse, any, any excuse yeah. <laughs> Bruce Willis recalls being pitched a film described as Die Hard in a Skyscraper, yeah. which he uh. said he was fairly sure had already been done. Uh, a little fun fact for you. Die Hard was big in Japan, where it won three prestigious awards. Also, a Japanese version of the poster renamed the film Reluctant Hero and gave it the tagline, Reluctant Hero must have beat his enemies. He has no shoes. <laughs> How many times have you seen Die Hard, Hannah? Maybe not that many. Maybe like when I watched it the other day, maybe half a dozen. I mean, that sounds like a lot, but given how omnipresent it is, yeah, yeah, maybe half a dozen. Yeah. You? Oh, I I do watch it every single year at Christmas. So a lot, for sure. I mean, I must have seen the sequels, but I think I've seen them once each. They're, They're not films I return to. I don't think I've ever seen the sequels. Ever. Interesting. Let's do the plot. It's Die Hard in a Skyscraper, isn't it? Okay. <laughs> Bruce Willis is John McClane, a smart male's New York cop who has just landed in Los Angeles on Christmas Eve in a bid to win back, or maybe not win back, his semi-estranged wife and corporate high flyer Holly, played by Bonnie Bedelia. He's been far from supportive of her choice to be a career woman, albeit a career woman who is still also looking after the kids. Anyway, he's meeting her at her firm's Christmas bash at the impressive Nakatomi Plaza skyscraper and arrives just in time to see a band of German terrorists led by suave intellectual Hans Gruber, that's Alan Rickman, take everyone hostage. McLean is tired, he's grumpy and he's already taken his shoes off, but he's also the only one who can save the day. And so, in a series of jaw-dropping stunts, explosions and killings, all interspersed with glass-sharp dialogue, he reluctantly does so. It's redemption through violence, and not just for McLean. But boy, oh cowboy, what a ride. Didn't think it was worth going into too many of the details, Hannah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The details is where the joy of it lies, yeah. So yeah, I'm not going to keep our powder wet. I'm going to ask you straight off. Are you are you a Die Hard fan? Do you like Die Hard? I I mean, yes, I enjoyed watching it. A for nostalgia purposes, if nothing else. Also, it is totally daft, so it's really <laughs> funny. But also, it is so crazy influential given mm-hmm. everything that we've listed afterwards. Yeah, I mean, to say that it's not a lot of fun to watch would be a lie. Absolutely. I can't say I'd probably ever say, shall we watch Die Hard? But if I flicked over a channel, which I literally spoke to my brother yesterday and he said, oh, I saw Die Hard the other day. I was just channel surfing and it was on and suddenly I was just watching it. So Uh yeah, I can imagine myself doing that. What about you? Oh, I love it. I absolutely love it. We've established in our other film section, which is flicking, that Hannah and Yosra have much more sophisticated tastes in films than me. She bloody loves a movie and this is a movie right it screams movie it's so so up my alley yeah but i also really love our hero john mcclain who looks knackered and beaten up and i thought you might like him as a hero as well because he's got those daredevil vibes but without the superpowers of actually like he gets beaten up and he looks beaten up 
Yeah, what I quite like about Daredevil, maybe this makes me weird, is I secretly suspect Daredevil and Choice being beaten up. Um, yeah. Whereas I don't, uh-huh. yeah. I mean, yesterday I was all ready to record, but it went very well and I had my white t-shirt on and everything. <laughs> um, yeah, my white vest. I was further on in the film, so I had a green vest on for no apparent reason. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that the, the vest colour is interesting because it does get very dark and then it goes quite light again. Apparently that's due to, sorry, let me just get my uh, little uh, die-hard <laughs> fact book out here. That's because they filmed more scenes where he's in the air vent. Oh, that makes me feel so claustrophobic just even yeah. watching him in that air vent. And so you saw his vest get progressively grubbier and grubbier. So they had a series of different coloured vests to like help with continuity. Cut all that so it just looks mad that he, you know, hasn't had time to put shoes on, but he has put a, ve- a different coloured vest on. Yeah. Personally, I'm a big fan of the gang, whatever, the Scorpions, the Lost Boys, whatever you want to call them. <laughs> they are absolutely insane. They've all got the most 80s haircuts. They're an advert for herbal essences. I'm pretty sure about that. <laughs> yeah. And also, like, crazy good hearing, all of them. Like, he does something three rooms away and one of them will look up like that and go, there's someone here. <laughs> and this How is why we no longer that? breed men with cats, Hannah, because it's just <laughs> too dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> And the, the the big the blonde one, the Carl with the yeah, he's like Pocahontas. His hair is always blowing in the wind. Somehow, <laughs> there's always like a breeze. I'm like, where is that breeze coming from? But the thing I like most about them is they're kind of like they got a touch of Saddam Hussein's mob about them. They're always just randomly firing their guns into the air. It's just they're pleased with their career choice, aren't they? Yeah. Mm. I think Carl's wind machine comes from the winds of a change, surely. I made that joke to Gary. I said, oh, I really enjoyed their song, The Winds of Change, and he didn't get it because he doesn't know 80s hair rock in the same way I do. <laughs> yeah. Okay, as we're talking about the Scorpions slash German terrorists, let's talk about Rickman. What a joy. Yeah, I mean, he's having a lot of fun. And it's obviously, it actually was interesting because it, it was less... It was less full on than I remember it, but I suppose that in my head I've got it mixed up a tiny bit. With the performance with Robin Hood, yeah. With how full on that is. It was actually a bit more low key than I remember it. It's definitely setting the way, isn't it, for his Sheriff of Nottingham, which will always be my favourite Rickman performance. And cancel Christmas. Yeah. I do think this is kind of it is paving the way for him to be the villain that is now something we expect from films, again, it really did set the blueprint. Instead of the villain being a bit one-note and just really aggressive, he's got a personality. Mm. Yeah. I might be wrong, but I think he's the reason that Brits became the go-to baddies, even though he's not playing a Brit in this. Mm. Yeah. They, uh, <laughs> uh, they became the sort of go-to baddies for Hollywood. And I know there's a lot of other politics involved in that. Like, for example, British actors tend to work for for less money than American actors will in Hollywood because they see it as that, you know, when people say, do you want to write for me for free? Because it will be good publicity. Exposure. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I think as a performance, it was pretty influential. But it is interesting in the sort of the history of bad guys in Hollywood. Like, for ages... Bad guys were, you know, they all tend to be Russian. Bad guys tend mm. to, you know. And then for a while they were South African because it's all about who gets demonised sort of within the world. 
and then obviously they went on to the point where they all became from the Middle East because yeah. it's all to do with international politics. But this is kind of a brief period in which Russia was kind of becoming a bit more friends with America slowly in like 1988. We're only a little bit from the wall coming down. So things were improving with Gorbachev. So they were obviously just casting around again. I don't know, what nationality should we make him? And they made him German because I don't actually think I've ever seen German baddies in any other... And they're West German. They're not East German. They're West German. We've seen German bodies in quite a lot of war films, I, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But not Nazi-based German bodies. Not Nazis, totally. Yeah. I actually have two genre questions for you, Hannah Dunleavy. I was excited mm-hmm. to talk about Die Hard with you. And one of them is about global politics. So you've just sort of touched on it there. Now, I don't know if you remember when we rated or dated Armageddon. Another yes. Bruce Willis is the every man that is here to save the world mm-hmm. film. And it is so fucking Trumpian when you watch it today. It's so make America yeah. great again. And that is something that has occasionally been levelled at Die Hard as well. And I wondered if that was something you'd spotted or if you thought that was a thing. Well, I watched Die Hard with one of our workies and they had never seen it before. We had quite a sort of a fun time watching it. But at the end, when Powell shoots Pocahontas. Yeah, she's yeah, a- right. And it's like, oh, great. And I I literally said, yay, he can kill people again. Like the message <laughs> of the yeah. message of the film is, yeah, I mean, he's back with his gun. Just we've got another copper firing wildly again. Terrific. Winner. So, yeah, that's a slightly odd message. Also, Holly thought she wanted a career and what she wanted was a husband to kill a lot of bad guys and lose the Rolex that represented her success. Exactly that. Yeah. And maybe it's better to be Mrs. McLean again, which is what she says. So, yeah, there is quite a lot of small P and big P politics in it, I think. But it's nowhere near as as in your face as as Armageddon, which is just like full on. It starts with him attacking Greenpeace. So, you know, yeah. he's, <laughs> he's, he's the cousin Greg of the film. <laughs> yeah. Interestingly, though, my watching colleague, did point out to me that um, there is some kind of really active racism directly into the face of a Japanese person in this, as in the the guy that's a massive prick. Ellis. The, the, the beard. Mr. 1980s. <laughs> Mr. Yeah, Coke. Yeah, yeah. He's actually quite racist towards the Japanese in this, which is around the point that I would suggest that America was, you know, slightly less racist towards the Japanese, but maybe it's not. His character is awful though and is meant to be awful mm. and Hart Bockner absolutely nails it like I, I'm not mad sad that he dies so the other genre that gets mentioned a lot and indeed gets mentioned within Die Hard is westerns and I wondered our western connoisseur whether you thought it had any relation at all to westerns it wants to be, <laughs> wants to be a western obviously doesn't it in, in as much as it just keeps saying, hey, I'm a Western. <laughs> yippee ki Roy Rogers, and all of that stuff. But no. I mean, I suppose the idea that a stranger has wandered into town, mm-hmm. you know, and takes on the bad guys. But it's absolutely an action film because I, there isn't a moral message in it. And Westerns tend to come with a moral message. And what's the moral message in this? Redemption through violence. Redemption through violence or women know your place. Okay, so I wondered, is Die Hard sexist and are tits talismans? Because they keep tapping them for good luck. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, yeah. yeah, my watching colleague noticed that quite a lot. Uh, yeah, 
Yeah, I mean, I think it is pretty sexist as films go in that sense. I mean, Holly's <laughs> Holly's office. It's like every time they go in there, there's like some tits in there for some reason or another. People are having sex. People are like snorting coke. It's like I would put a black light on Holly's office. It would just be <laughs> horrific. Even what she gets to do, which is to be the leader of the hostages, like that's still ultimately a caring role. Mm. It's perceived as. It's not like a, a do stuff role. Then she gets threatened. She gets kind of the threat of being fridged at the end. Now, it's absolutely uh, pretty sexist, as films go, I would say. And obviously, they did get one thing right, Hannah. Journalists are scum. Absolute yeah, scum. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And the coppers are so fucking stupid. The guy who plays Beaks in Trading Places, who turns up and is like the head of the police before the before the Phoebes come to take over. <laughs> he couldn't be more useless if he was trying to be useless. There's a bit where he suggests that the uh, that it's a prank, and you're like, <laughs> who inside that building, either terrorist or hostage, is going to say? Oh, do you know what? I've got five minutes. I'm going to prank them outside and pretend to be somebody else. So, I mean, that's what I mean about it being stupid. It, it relies on everybody in this being stupid in order for the plot to work. Indeed. I did wonder. I thought you would like it potentially for nostalgia reasons. And because yeah. it is it's such... Oh, I did not like it. <laughs> no, no. But I was just going to say, but I thought you might not like it because there are a lot of plot holes. And I know that really gets your goat. Oh, yeah. Uh, like so many plot holes. But I think it just... The sheer exuberance of the film carries it through. I, mm. I don't really care that if all they needed for, was for the FBI to cut the power, they could have probably just done that themselves. Yeah. <laughs> you know. A- yeah, absolutely. And also, presumably, there are backup generators at that place. So mm. presumably, because the lights come back on. So presumably, the backup generators would kick in and reseal it. I don't yeah. know. And also the, the whole plot, and I know obviously we're 35 years on, but the whole plot of them, they just stole a load of paper. They were just trying to steal a load of paper. Bonds yeah. don't mean anything unless you take them into the bank. You're mm. going to get caught, mate. <laughs> That's Absolutely. Not, for all that you are a smart guy, I don't know that you've thought that one through. You're not going to be on the beach getting your 20% because that's not how bonds work. Mm. Yeah, agreed. I was also struck by how really, really ugly that building was inside i mean it looked like it looked like a, a shit motel the reception of that yeah and given that it's an, an absolutely enormous building from the outside when you're inside it the only thing that exists appears to be in about a five meter radius from the lift like they never yeah. go any further than that like there are loads of places you could hide in this totally it's, it's a 32 floor building why don't you just go to some of the other offices below <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But Hannah, I don't care. I don't care about the plot holes. Stop it. Stop <laughs> it. I don't care. Hannah Dunleavy, Die Hard in a Skyscraper, rated or dated? Oh, I'm going to say rated. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to say rated. Do you want to know? Do you want to know what uh, what our work he gave it? I might have to cut this out depending on how poor taste you think it is. Go on. He gave it nine eleven out of ten. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that work is going to go far. It's going to go far. <laughs> I'm giving it a rated. What are we watching next week? Next week, we are watching 2003's Whale Rider. I don't know what that is. It's a New Zealand film. It's a film about a young girl who wants to become the head of her tribe. 
and her grandfather won't let her. Now, if you think that sounds like the plot of Moana, you are onto something. <laughs> it's the rock in it. Standard issue for all women.